Proverbs 27, verses 22, <clears throat> to the end of the chapter. Though you grind <clears throat> a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever. Nor does a crown endure to all generations. When hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. For you shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. May Jehovah bring his judgments of old to mind and uh, comfort us in them. Heavenly Father, we ask that um, that we may learn from this your word this morning. May it be profitable to us May you uh, show to us Christ in, in these words. May, Lord, this time as we look at this passage, may you sanctify us through it. May you uh, show to us those areas that we need to grow. And I pray that you would sanctify my sinful lips, that they may and drive away what is uh, chaff. That what we hear today might be uh, edifying and truthful. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week I had prepared a chiasm on verses 1 to 22, which we, remember, we looked at those verses last week, or last couple weeks on friendship. But I didn't pass it out because I wasn't satisfied with how, with how either verse 22 or the first verse fit into, into that. And so rather than uh, pass out something that was, that I wasn't confident in, I, I held it. Well, on rereading this ending, I realized why. It, it doesn't fit in that first section. It ties in much better with this second section. The folly of a fool is forever. You can't separate it from him. Though you grind him with a mortal in a pestle, you can't get the folly out of the fool. It's forever, as a, unlike riches in the next verse, which are not forever. There's a contrast there. Some things you can't separate no matter how hard how you try, no matter how much effort you go to. Other things is just the opposite. They take effort and attention and care to preserve. 
I think that is the that is the uh, significance or the uh, connection between these two these two verses. Some things are forever, and other and and they take and uh, they don't take any effort to maintain. In fact, there's not, no amount of effort can undo them. On the other hand, other things aren't forever, and they take effort and diligence and care to maintain. This is one of those passages that um, is very, we might say secular, it's very mundane. It deals with some very ordinary and routine things. There are, there are passages of Scripture that are central, that are, you might think of them as high points. They deal with these cardinal doctrines, these great and precious promises, you know, and those passages are are um, beautiful and and powerful, and they are you know worthy of a lot of time and meditation. But there are, but but in order to have a peak, there also has to be things that aren't the peak. You know, if the whole earth is as high as Mount Everest, then then nothing's a mountain. And those passages are, are, are what they are because there are other passages that are ordinary and routine. And this is one of those ordinary and routine passages. But we shouldn't think, therefore, that just because it's ordinary and routine, that therefore it's less, um, less worthy of our attention. This is, this is a part of the Word of God. And even though it deals with some very mundane and ordinary things. It is, it is part of the Word of God, and therefore it is profitable for us so that we are thoroughly equipped and thoroughly furnished to every good work. Well, what we don't know uh, uh, does hurt us. And so we'll look here in, in, this, in two sections, two parts, basically. Um, that which is forever, the folly of a fool is forever, and that which isn't forever, that which riches, which are not forever. And the instruction then that this passage would have for us regarding our flocks and our herds. So the folly of a fool, though, is, is forever. You can't get it out. I, I love that image there. If you, if those of you that have a, a mortar, mortar and a pestle, you know, and have ground things up in it, you know exactly what this is talking about. You can break it, break something down as fine as you want, but you cannot change something that is a part of the DNA uh, of that material. You can't you can't get that out. And that's what the Bible says about folly. It's a common fallacy in our culture today that more education will cure the folly of fools. And that people's problem is that they are basically not educated enough. They're just uneducated. A disobedient child, we're told. They just need to be told one more time. They need one more explanation. 
people voting for the wrong candidate. They're just low-information voters, a little more education, and they could vote correctly. Pregnancy out of wedlock, whatever the age they might be. Um, sometimes it's um, children, teenagers. They just need a little more education about pregnancy and how babies are conceived. And that will, and that will prevent this from happening. Actually, they seem to have that figured out quite well. They didn't need any, edu- any of your education. Or children taking hallucinogenic drugs. They just need more education about drugs. And the great irony is that these education programs that they have designed, these people have designed, aimed at children like D.A.R.E. or Just Say No or the sex talk, they actually end up producing more of the very behavior they were supposed to prevent because they expose and open up people's minds to these things that they may not have even been thinking about. Or another misconception is that a better uh, people just need a, a better environment. But a better environment won't cure the folly of a fool. More experience won't cure the folly of a fool. Tribulation and hard times won't cure the folly of a fool. I had a a CEO years ago who was fond of saying in the context of hiring that uh, stupid is forever. You could teach a person etiquette. You could teach them uh, how to talk and give a presentation, but you couldn't make them smart. And and that was a pretty wise uh, observation. He was he was he re- he was saying you need to hire people that have abilities. Um, you can they may not have all the all the uh, things that go around that and make make a nice presentation. But you can fix all that. They can learn that. But you can't. You can't make somebody um, have ability that they don't have. Don't marry a fool, expecting they will grow out of it. Now, few, if any, would admit to marrying a fool on the day of the wedding. But a few years later in divorce court, it's quite a different story. They all want divorces because they believe they've married a fool. You see, someone who is not captive to the word of God, someone whose chief purpose in life is not glorifying God and enjoying him forever, is not, is not going to change after they get married. They're not going to grow into that. If that's not what they already are, you you have no expectation that they will become that kind of a person. It's very easy to deceive yourself. It's especially very easy for um, men to promise all kinds of things, young men to promise all kinds of things. It's very easy for young ladies to be, um, to not see clearly. Or to think that things will get better or things will change. But they don't. Don't marry a fool expecting they will grow out of it. Marry well. 
very well. And it takes, it takes a godly character to be able to recognize a godly character. Another fool is not going to recognize a godly character. In fact, they may, may pass right by it and never realize what they were looking at or maybe even be turned off by it. It takes a godly character. If you want to know, be able to recognize a godly man and a godly young woman, then the way to do that is, is to, to be godly yourself. To do those things that you want your future spouse to do. Now, how, now, this says that a fool is, um, you can't separate his foolishness from him. But other passages in the Bible say that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, how should we understand this? How do we are the, the we know of course that these two passages are not contradictory but how do we understand them here's one passage that says you can't get the f- foolishness out of a fool and another passage that says well you do get the foolishness out of the fool you just have to it just takes a rod well the I think the way to understand these two passages, these are obviously not contradictory. No part of the Word of God ever contradicts the Word of God. Uh, When we understand that Word in its proper context. And that is that only the Holy Spirit can take the folly out of the fool. Only the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing that can ever change the folly of a fool. And he works through means. He works through the preaching of the scriptures. He works through parents teaching their children the scriptures and training their children to walk in them. And in order for that training to be effective, the Bible teaches it must be accompanied by the wise and loving use of the rod. But when people, when parents forget that the rod is useless, without the work of the Holy Spirit, and they begin to apply the rod and the rod and the rod and the rod, and they don't get the results they want, so they use more of the rod, then they get two results. They either say, oh, well, the rod doesn't work, so the Bible's it's just not true. It didn't work in that case. Or they just say, well, I guess I'm not applying the rod enough, and they keep applying it more and more. Both, of course, are tragically wrong. What's missing is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. God's Word teaches, in the case of children and driving foolishness from them, teaches the rod is necessary. And that we hate our child if we spare a rod. But we have to remember that without the work of the Holy Spirit, it's useless. And so part of properly bringing the rod is to pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in that situation. So that's why if there is the use of the rod without the use of prayer, 
It won't drive the folly out of the fool. It won't. It will just make an angry fool. The Holy Spirit calls things into existence that did not exist before. God gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though they did. And so God alone can take the take this foolishness out of our children or out of any fool. And if we're not praying for that work of the Holy Spirit to bless our teaching, to bless our words, <clears throat> to bless our instruction, to bless our example, and, and to bring life to our children as we bring the Word of God to them, and to bring uh, change to them as we bring the rod where that's needed, then all of those things will be useless. They won't work. They won't get, because by themselves, those things cannot get the foolishness out of the fool. And our children are fools. They are born in sin. No, though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle, no natural means, no natural means are adequate to remove the foolishness of a f from a fool or the folly from our children. There are no natural remedies that can do that. Now, there are a lot of uh, people today that are questioning the scriptures on, on, these, on this matter of, of the foolishness in children. And there are, uh, there are a lot of um, theories that people put out there, different ways of doing things. And in, s in some senses, there, there is some wisdom in those things. But the Word of God is true. And the Word of God never changes, never goes out of style. It's never outdated. And it's never wrong. And so when, when people are in flat-out contradiction to the Word of God or try to raise uh, children without the rod, it, it, it will fail. It will fail. All right. Riches are not forever. They can take wings and fly away, and so we need to be diligent about our business. We need to remember that our business is a holy calling. A holy calling. Whatever that business is, it's a holy calling. The Bible regards it as a holy calling. It's part of our spiritual service. The work that we do you know, Monday through Saturday is a part of our spiritual service to the Lord. The New Testament parallel to this uh, passage is in Romans 12.11 where, where we're told not to be slothful in business, 
fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Our, the, the things that we do on the Lord's Day in, in gathering for worship or reading the Bible, these are not more spiritual activities than the business that we do, whether that's installing hot water heaters or, or programming computers. The, this that business is a holy calling. You know, we sometimes think of business and finance as less spiritual matters than the doctrines of grace or of character. That yes, we need to be honest in our business, right? Our, the fact that we're a Christian means that we that we go about our business in, a, in an upright way. We don't lie, cheat, and steal people from people. But it's much more than that. The, that very work that we do, we do it to the Lord. It's a holy calling. It's how we serve the Lord. In fact, it's the culmination of the gospel. Paul put it this way to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation. Now what is the ministry that Paul received. He summed everything up by saying that the ministry that he had received was to testify to the grace of God in the gospel. That was his calling as as an apostle. And here's how he sums up. What is the grace of God that brings salvation? It's appeared to all men. Well, this is is the result. This is the culmination, the, the, the focus teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In this age. That's age right now. And not just live one day a week in this age, but seven days a week we're living in this age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now how how do we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus. Do we stand on a hill in white robes? No, of course not. But some people, some people have said that. We do that by our, by our living in this present age, in, in, in the business, carrying out the business that we've been called to carry out. looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Now, good works aren't just Uh, when you memorize a passage of Scripture. Good works aren't just when you take time and pray. Good works are when you build a house, hammer a nail. Good works are when you write a computer program that works because you've done it in a way, not in a way that glorifies the Lord. You've done it for a purpose that glorifies the Lord. You've done it uh, depending upon the Lord for the wisdom to do it and so on. So that, but those very 
acts themselves are the good works for which we have been saved. You know, you, every, every business, and I have yet to find an exception. There may be one out there, but I, don't, I haven't come across it. Every business exists to satisfy the, the, to provide for food, for shelter, for clothing, for uh, the, the physical well-being, the medical well-being, and the emotional well-being of people, of your of families. And that's why, under the word economy, in in the orig- Webster's original dictionary, it talked about home management, because business is under the purview of the home. But all of these things that we do in business ultimately lead to those the provisions of those basic needs. Uh, for families. And so I, I give you this lengthy introduction here to this section so that when we come to the when we look at in a minute at this section in just a in just a little bit of detail, it won't be with the idea that well this is kind of an appendage to our Christian life. This is sort of a of secondary importance, but rather we'll see that it is this very it is a how we conduct our very business that is the purpose for which we have been saved. It's the grace of God that brings salvation that teaches us to live in this age and it, God has saved us so that we would be a people zealous for good works. So that when we go about the science uh, uh, The work that Adam was given was naming the animals. That was his spiritual calling, and and that work has you know grown today. We have a lot of different fields and things that have grown from that. But whatever those works are, those that that is our spiritual calling. And so the um, grace of God leads us to be able to do these works uh, in a way that pleases the Lord. And this is what we're to do. Riches are not forever. Therefore, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and be diligent to attend to your flocks. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and be diligent to attend to your flock. These are two separate but very closely related exhortations. The first is to know, to keep up with the state of the flock. The second is to do something with what you know. Be diligent to know the state of your flock. Some things are easily known, but other matters require some attention some preparation and some diligence to assess the condition of one's flocks. Not just, it's not obvious from, from casual observation. It's not obvious as, you, as it would be said to the casual observer. So that it may take some diligence to know the state of our flocks. But having been diligent to know the state of our flock, attending to our flock means acting on that information to maintain and to improve the well-being 
of the flock. Now, most of us don't have flocks. We don't depend on goats for our milk or lambs for our wool. But these principles do apply to the businesses that we have. And so knowing the state of one's flock may, might mean, in most of our cases, it might, would mean having a budget. Knowing where money is going. And it means then planning regarding provision of future needs. Not only knowing where the money that we have right now is going and, and ensuring that it's wisely spent, but also thinking, anticipating what are the things that we, gonna, that we will be needing 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road and, and providing and preparing for to be able to provide for those needs. It means that every dollar that, in, in our language today, every dollar that comes into our purse has a job assigned to it. It has a place where we are going to put it to good use, whether that's tomorrow, whether that's in 20 years. It typically means providing for the years that we won't be able to work saving 10% of our income over 40 years at, let's say, a, a 5% rate of return should provide a, a, a sufficient income for us to live out our life. Now, our 20th century has seen that concept uh, destroyed. And, and it's so... Uh, And it's a wicked, a wicked thing. One of the things that, that has destroyed it is inflation. So that if we, somebody were to save 10% of their income over 40 years and get a, and get a reasonable uh, return on that savings, inflation has destroyed the purchasing ability of that of that uh, money such that that savings would is sometimes no longer able to provide an adequate income for the rest of one's life and and to provide for those in need and to cover the expenses that may happen from that and that is wicked and it what it didn't happen by accident it happened by design the people that did this, knew what they were doing to us. It is, a, it is a grievous sin. Of course, we're the ones that allowed it to happen. We're the ones that voted in their ideas and their plans. Of course, without, the, uh, without a central bank and without some kind of uh, fiat money, this kind of inflation wouldn't be possible. It, takes a, it took a Federal Reserve in place and it took allowing them to issue Federal Reserve notes. If you look at your pieces of paper, that's what they are that they issue, their Federal Reserve notes. It took allowing that to happen in order for them to then create this situation of inflation. 
John Maynard Keynes, who was a who was the brain trust behind a lot of these ideas, said that inflation was a tax that not one man in a million could diagnose. And so it's a tax that uh, is able to be exacted from people without their understanding who or what is getting that tax. And so this has been a huge, this is a huge impediment to people trying to, to live in a, res- in a responsible way and pre- prepare and provide for themselves in their retirement. The other problem is that the government has stepped in and said, give us your money and we'll take care of your flocks. We'll, we'll be diligent to look to the state of your flocks and we'll be diligent to attend to them. And we believe them. That's called Social Security. Social Security. The government said, we'll tend to the state of your flocks. We'll provide your Social Security. You just give us your money. And then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be diligent because we will be diligent for you. Well, we didn't accept the state saying, give us your children and we'll raise them. Neither should we accept it when the state says, give us your money and we'll, we'll take care of it for you. They're not going to do any better job with our money than they did with our children. Our children, they taught how to fornicate, how to murder, how to covet, how to rebel against authority. What do you suppose they're going to do with your money? Nothing good. Nothing good. Social Security was the government's plan to give, have us give them our money so that they could then look after our flocks and provide for us in our old age. And most of America fell for it. I think people are starting to wake up now and they're realizing that the government can't really do what they promised to do. And they and people that are just starting out to pay into Social Security now are recognizing there's probably not, not going to be anything there for them. But they're stuck with the tax. And they can't get out of it. Because the folly of government programs... There's no end. Another problem with uh, Social Security is that it it really takes a responsibility from the family and gives it to the state. What happens when there are poor? What happens when our parents are poor and unable to um, or, or need help? Social Security has said, We'll, we'll take care of that. You don't need to be concerned about them. And, and people who say, well, we don't really want to take care of our children aren't any more responsible at the other end of life when it's time for them to take care of their parents. It's, it's interesting how that comes back, doesn't it? The parents that say, we're, we don't, we don't, we're too busy to take care of our children. We'd like to slip them off to school so we can do what we want to do. When, when those children grow up, 
then they aren't interested in caring for their parents. They have other more important things to do. But this basic message is here is ought to is that what ought to be is that the when the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, when you have been diligent your life over the over the working time of your life in the holy calling that God has given to you, that then the lambs will provide your clothing, the goats the price of the field, and you shall have goat's milk enough for food and for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. That if you have been diligent in in caring uh, for your flocks, that they then will provide for your household. And so I think one of our challenges as Christians today living in this present age is is to understand how we can begin to be more faithful in in these areas of finance and not depend depend upon the government to be our provision even as we don't want to depend on the government to teach our children. Now there was years ago, a couple decades ago in the in the 80s and 90s it, it was a big thing for parents to think about actually teaching their own children. They, that was a daunting thought because for years they just sent them off to the government schools so they could have a free day. But parents found out that, families found out that they could teach their children and that there was actually some a lot of wisdom in that because the ones that really got into doing it found that they learned a lot of things that they... Uh, hadn't understood before. The fact that through the process of teaching their own children, they learned a lot of things. And there's a a reason that God has us teach our children. It's how we learn. It's how he teaches us. And and so as we um, think about our finances, we need to think the same way. It may be daunting for us to think about providing for our, our own income, our own care, in our old age. But that's that's what God's word, that's the ex- expectation of God's word. And, and I think as we begin to do that, we'll begin to see great blessing in that. As we begin to plan now, remember this is um, being diligent now. It takes, it takes foresight, it takes preparation to be able to provide for future needs. And something we need to start thinking about now. Especially if you're just starting out your your life and your or your marriage and you're putting your home together. Be thinking about how do we build finances over the years to be able to provide for not only ourselves, but also the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to their children. So it's not just getting enough money to to last to the day you die and a few extra dollars to bury you, but rather having enough that there's something to pass on to children. And that can happen. It doesn't have to happen when you die. It can happen uh, before that as well. But when we begin to um, 
start thinking about this and, and instead of just blindly giving our money over to the government and expecting them to look after our flocks and herds, uh, the Lord will begin to bless our, our plans and our labors as we follow him in obedience. Now there's other applications of this as well that we are to, we are to know the state of our flocks and our herds. Husbands, how is your wife spiritually as well as emotionally, physically? Do you know? Do you think about that? Do you, do, are you diligent to know the state of your flock in that regard? Do you attend to your flock in that regard? Fathers, how are your children spiritually, emotionally, physically? Do you know the kinds of conversations they are having with their friends? Do you know their dreams? What would inspire them? What spiritual weaknesses they have? What spiritual fruits they are deficient in. Our children need nurture. They need nurture. It, education is not just putting them in front of a screen. Education is not just putting them in front of a book. It's not just giving them a cookbook and a kitchen and telling them to get to work. Our children need our attention. Be diligent. Be diligent to know the state of your flock and be diligent to attend to them. They need to be able to, children need to be able to work with us. They need to be able to work alongside of us. They need to be able to work um, uh, with us and to know our nurture through our attention to them. And and uh, children, just like flocks that are starved for attention don't do well, you can always tell flocks that are starved for attention. Right? The coats don't shine. They're dull. They're the 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 fur is mangy. It's, it's they don't look uh, good. But but animals, flocks that are well cared for, you know, where somebody is, where somebody is walking among them, looking at them. Or somebody that knows each one in that flock and, and cares for them and they know the things that that, that 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 animal needs, those animals look good. They look good. And they and they are healthy. I I saw a um reminds me, I saw a a little um a, a news clip where these people had gone uh this 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 investigative reporter had gone to a bunch of different farms. This, in this case, they were chicken farms. And well, they didn't go to. They went to one farm. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But they they took twelve different, or is it twelve different case dozens of eggs? Yes, it's twelve dozens of eggs uh, from different uh, uh, organic um, egg farms. So they went to the big box organic. Um, brands, and I think this was done in Canada or the UK. It wasn't in the United States. But they, so they took all these twelve different uh, brands of organic eggs from the big box organic stores that said organic eggs, and they kind of showed little pictures of what that meant. Right? It it meant they had slightly bigger cages. They weren't quite as packed together, and they got organic food. Right? But it was still highly mechanized farming. 
and then and then there were ones that were free range organic eggs and and those they had little doors where the the chickens could go outside in a grass area and that was free range right? but some cases they didn't really have that much outside to go to and then they went and spent uh, where most of the video was showing was this one family farm a husband and wife and they looked to be a little bit older uh, who were who had this organic chicken farm and this lady you know knew the chickens and the and the person the, the reporter asked her uh, are your chickens happier because you know and she said yes my chickens are happier but you could look at the you know, there was space there you could look at this herd of this flock of chickens and they were they they looked good now here's the thing they sent these 12 dozen of eggs to a lab they were going to test they're saying are there any differences in the nutrients in these eggs? Guess what? For the vast majority of mechanized farms, there was no difference between them and the regular eggs. But for the one kind of farm where they actually were nurturing the flock, there were big differences in the nutrients of the eggs. What's the difference there? It wasn't the labeling. It wasn't the organic food. It wasn't the fr- all that. It was, there was somebody that was attending to their flock, to the well-being of their flock. Yes, it produced a difference in the nutrients in the eggs. So f- our, our children need our nurture. They need our time. They need our affection. They need our care. It's that we, it's not just that they learn X, Y, and Z, but it's that we are teaching them, we are spending time with them in teaching them X, Y, and Z. That's what makes the difference. Be diligent to attend to the needs of your flock. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great shepherd and that you are attentive to our our every need and our every cry. We thank you that you that you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You attend to all of our needs. You provide. Lord, you are abundantly gracious in your provision for us. You know, you, you know when we need encouragement. You know when we need comfort. You know when we need rebuked. You know when we need humbled. And we thank you that you are the wise master shepherd, ever, ever attendant on the needs of your flock, of your people. Father, we do... We do love you. We do thank you for the example of Christ as our, sh- as our shepherd, as our prophet, priest, and king. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom, that you would take away our foolishness and our stubbornness and our pride, and that you would teach us 
the wisdom of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.